Welcome to Forward Obsessed, where we talk to breakthrough business leaders and rising entrepreneurs about their journeys, origin stories, and aha moments. Progress, pitfalls, and pivots. Business is a roller coaster, folks. Strap in, there's only one direction, and it's forward. Hosted by Pete Senna and David Salinas. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm really excited to have Matt Murphy on the call today. Uh, Matt's an investor, an entrepreneur, a marketeer. Um, Matt, you've kind of done it all. So thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Really, really excited for you to be on this episode of Forward Obsessed. Um, so we'll just jump right into it, Matt. I know your time is super, super limited. Um, the one thing I know the audience is going to be really, really inter interested to understand is how at the young age of 21, you just got thrown into a company that we all know and love today, E-Trade. But what was that like just sort of getting thrown into it um, having an executive come to you and basically be like, hey, we need you to basically take over marketing. So take us through just like a little bit of, you know, the, the humble beginnings of this journey and we'll kick us right off. Yeah, of course. And, and thank you both for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, so I, I'd say the humble beginnings, the key learning there is if an opportunity comes in front of you and you you feel incredibly nervous about it, jump in right with both feet. So I was uh, you know, a young 20 year old going to college at Santa Clara University and uh, had an internship opportunity in front of me at E-Trade in, in my uh, uh, summer between uh, sophomore and junior year. And so you know, it was a finance internship um, that started out but quickly pivoted into a marketing opportunity which was fascinating because I was studying finance in school thinking I was gonna be all about the numbers and the data and finance and accounting, what have you. But, um, you know, where E-Trade stood at that point in time was it was, you know, spending a lot of money on marketing. It was really creating a category at that point in time, right? People were used to trading on their telephone, you know, I kid you not, back in the day into That's now trading. Cool. Yeah, now <laughs> trading online. Right? Exactly. Phone your broker, right? And E-Trade really brought forward online trading right as, as a, a new opportunity right and really challenged kind of the old way of doing things into this new way leveraging the internet right so this was back in 2000 so it was a while ago uh, a good 20 years ago but you know I jumped in as, a, as an intern and you know was having a blast it was a great internship really fulfilling learned a lot did more of the kind of finance side of marketing um, but then as my internship was coming up um, my boss said, hey, you know, we've we loved having you here this summer. We know you're going back to school and Santa Clara is literally like 30 minutes down the street from E-Trade, which was in Menlo Park. He said, would you be willing to, uh, you know, stay on with us during the year? And I said, you know, I'm, I'm working two jobs on campus. You know, I'm really busy. I'm the treasurer of my fraternity. He's like, you know what? This would be a great opportunity. You should really think about it. So, of course, <laughs> I go and think about it. And I, I, I talked to my, my uncles and I talked to my dad. And they said, you know what, Matt? Just jump into it, right? I mean, if, if they're giving you a full-time opportunity at 20, I think it was not even 21 yet, uh, just go for it, right? So I jumped in full full steam ahead, right? And and literally, the, the good thing about my college is I was able to take classes on Tuesdays and Thursdays and then go to work Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, and E-Trade was you know, totally flexible. And so what happened during that period of time was the dot-com crash, right? And all of my friends were you know, sitting around the table saying, we're not going to get jobs. Literally, the, the stock market crashed. The employment in the Bay Area was just horrible. And I was sitting here, you know, going to school full time, 
starting out my first job, right? And uh, they threw me into the advertising department, which I don't really have a creative bone in my body. Um, but what, what uh, the guy told me, who was my boss at the time, said, you know what? This is the biggest budget in the company. We have agencies that can handle the creative side. We need someone who can actually figure out where the spend is going. And so at, uh, by that point, I was 21 and I was managing $350 million a year. Uh, which was nuts, right? And I was Three hundred and fifty like, million dollars a year, folks. At it was 20. a big budget. It's it was, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we were sponsoring the Super Bowl. We were advertising nonstop everywhere. And so, you know, if I if I trust if I trusted the path that I thought I was going down, you know, a financial analyst or something along those lines, I would have totally turned my head on the opportunity. Uh, but it actually pushed me into marketing and I've loved it ever since. So just jump in with both feet. No, I love that. And, and I think the the idea of digging into the, the art and science of marketing is something that's been a really big part of your career. I mean, you've done everything from, you know, really leading marketing at Chegg, you know, obviously amazingly known company in the education space to now you're investing in a lot of fintech companies, a lot of different industries. And you're also, if, if I sort of did my homework correctly, un, unwritten wines, T tell yeah. me a little bit about that. Like, how do you go from like running a $350 million budget to uh, starting a wine company and investing in fintech companies? It's a hell of a journey. So let's, let's get right yeah. into it. You know, there, there's a couple couple interesting themes, right? And hindsight's always 2020. Uh, but, you know, as I look back to kind of E-Trade and, and Chegg and, and even RenRen, you know, it was all about kind of challenging traditional industries, using technology to kind of rethink it and deliver better experiences, right? Whether E-Trade was boot your broker, do it yourself, Chegg was stop paying an arm and a leg for your textbooks, rent them instead, to RenRen, where we were literally churning out innovative products, right? In real estate, financial services, communications, logistics. Um, and that, you know, is what I look for today at Montage, right, is backing entrepreneurs that have the same philosophy of just challenging the ordinary to build extraordinary experiences. So to answer your question, though, how a winery gets into that equation, because it does not connect the dots. Um, you need a lot of alcohol to stay, to stay sane after all yeah, those. Pretty those much. <laughs> now, I was fortunate to, to sell a company, which we'll talk about later, called Lemon Wallet. And, um, you know, it's, it's funny, like my kids ask, like, what does daddy do? And, you know, I build tech companies. Well, they, they don't understand what that means, right? You know, you build something that you can't really touch or see. Um, and so a couple of friends of mine who, you know, we enjoyed fine wines together, um, you know, we're, we're drinking a nice bottle of wine one night. And literally, I think I threw out the crazy idea of let's start a winery, you know, let's just, you know, it can't be that hard. Well, it is very hard to do. Um, but, you know, we wanted to produce something that was physical, right, that we could enjoy with our friends and family. And, you know, when, when our kids get married, you know, pour, pour a glass at the wedding. Um, so it, it was a kind of a crazy idea, but I actually, with my grandfather, I used to make wine when I was very, very young. He came from Italy and planted some, some crops, uh, on our, on our property and, and we used to make wine. So it was deep in my history. Um, never thought I'd be doing it when I was, I think 34, when we started our first vintage. Um, but it's been fun. It's That's been a awesome. great experience. So Matt, let me take you back for a second. So this, this concept of like when you see opportunity go after it i like to get into the energy of business i always say that there's a if, if you really pay attention to the way things uh sound and feel that you can or the way that you feel that you can actually make really good decisions tell me about 
opportunity to you. And it, this is obviously when you made the decision for E-Trade, the investments that you make uh, and with, with founders, the businesses that you've started, what does opportunity feel like to you? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. Um, and I, I'd say I'd kind of follow that with a quote from Bill Campbell, the coach. Is, Love that book, Trillion Dollar Coach. Great book. <laughs> yeah. But, but really, he has a quote that says, be the person that gives energy, right? But I'd say in, in my career, I've followed the people who have created energy, right? So, you know, E-Trade was, was led by Christos Gatsakis, who's a phenomenal entrepreneur slash business leader, who literally, you're in a room with him and it's magnetic, right? And he just creates energy. Um, at Chegg, you know, uh, Osman and... Um, and the team there uh, created energy, right? They created opportunity, um, which you know had never been seen before in the space. You know, Joe Chen at Renren is dynamic. I mean, the guy is an idea guy. Every every minute of the day, he's creating opportunities. And so, I love being around people like that that literally breed energy into the room, and and, and they don't see what's out there existing as a blocker, right? They see it as an opportunity to rethink it or create something better or bigger, right? Mm -hmm. Using technology, using advancements that we have. And so, you know, back to your question of like, how do I see opportunity? For me, it's really about the people, you know? I mean, I can see an amazing space that has all the macro trends moving in the right direction, but if the team that's working on it, if I don't believe in the team, I'm not gonna put my energy behind it because I've seen, bad teams go after big opportunities and fail. I've seen great teams go after small opportunities and fail, right? So it's really about the right team, the right space, the right timing to really drive success. And I want to get to that, that team dynamic for a second, because you mentioned Bill Campbell. And you know, one thing, Matt, that I myself learned sort of late in my career is just the power and the importance of, of teamwork and leadership. And it's something that you know, I kicked myself for not studying it because as an engineer myself, I've coded in 20 different languages, but I can count on one hand the number of leadership trainings I've had. And I asked that question about team because you know, you're a person where people listening to this now or in the future, um, they might potentially be CEOs or founders of companies that you'll invest in or companies that you're a part of investing. What do you think makes a great team? What do you think makes a great leader? I mean, obviously you've had a lot of great, great role models in your career, but also now you're, you're using it to pick the companies you invest in. So tell, tell me a little bit about that if you could. Yeah, I mean, team and culture matter, right? So, you know, you need a leader who has a has a strong vision, right? And has has the energy and the experience or the drive, right, to really execute upon that. And, and my partner at Montage Ventures, Todd Kimmel, you know, says we, we back founders that are outsiders to the industry, but insiders to the problem, right? So they deeply feel that issue that they're going after, right? So much that they keeps them up at night, they can't sleep, they can't do anything else but solve that problem. So I think when you have someone who has that strong of a passion against a cause, that's gonna recruit people to get excited, right? Because we all work for people who we look up to, right? Or we believe in, right? Or we believe in what they're wanting to achieve and we wanna be a part of that. And so I think, you know, great, great leaders can create great teams. With a great team, you can create a great company and a great culture. Um, but, but I think you need all of those together to succeed, right? One person doesn't make a great company and one person doesn't always make a successful business, right? You need the people and the people have to believe and they, they have to be working, you know, incredibly hard to achieve something, something big and powerful. 
So, so let's talk about let's 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 pivot to pivots. Yeah. Uh, across your across your career, you've been you have invested, you've worked for, uh, started or invested in several companies. What have been some of the biggest pivots that you've had to make yourself or you've seen make made uh, that turned out to be uh, uh, positive for in, in some type of direction towards the positive? Like in Matt, I think a lot about your Bling Nation to Lemon Wallet transition and what that what that sort of energy shift pivot looked like. So I'd love for you to kind of unpack yeah. that for the audience because I was stoked when I discovered that online in my research. Definitely. So, you know, one thing that we look for in an entrepreneur as well is, is the ability to test and learn and try new things and fail fast. And, you know, I think as, as you know, when you're young, right, you don't have a lot holding you back. You don't have a lot of obligations. You don't have a lot of financial stress. And so you do try new things because you have nothing to lose, right? Whereas as you get older, you, you start a family, you get a mortgage, you have debt or bills or what have you, or college looming for your kids, you take less risky chances, right? On average, on average. So, you know, we, we look for entrepreneurs that, you know, have the hunger to ask the hard questions that have the desire to, to test and learn and leverage data and fail quickly and iterate and not be afraid. Right. Cause when you stop taking risks, you, you really stop living in a lot of ways. And so, you know, one of the favorite pivots that I've been a part of, and I've been a part of quite a few, um, was, was this bling nation to lemon wallet um, pivot because, from the outside looking in, Bling Nation looked like a very successful business in the payment space. Um, Bling Nation was a mobile payments platform that really helped banks and merchants and consumers use their phones to pay for transactions before Apple Pay ever existed, right? So you could literally tap your phone. There was an NFC chip on the back of it. It would take money out of your bank account or your PayPal account and transfer that to the merchant, right? And be an ecosystem within a banking infrastructure. It was very hard to create at that point in time. I mean, this was um, Mickey, Malka, and Wences Casares founded the company, I believe, in 2008. Um, and so it was very advanced. They raised over $30 million from Lightspeed, which is a phenomenal, you know, top 10 venture investor based out of Menlo Park. We had 80 people in the company. I was the GM running sales and marketing. We were, um, you know, our founders were successful with many big exits behind them. We were live in 20 markets across the U.S., but honestly, something didn't feel right. Mm. The way we could grow each month was me adding another few salespeople, right? And each salesperson could sell five to 10 different merchants. And so we were growing, but it wasn't organic. It wasn't natural. It was very forced. Um, and something, the, the pull through and the liquidity in the marketplace just didn't feel um, like it had a power of its own right? To really foster and further the growth so that one plus one would equal 10 instead of one plus one equaling two, right? So we, um, as a management team, we basically went to Lake Tahoe for a weekend and locked ourselves in the cabin. And we were actually there for like five days. It wasn't just a weekend because we, we got inspired. And we basically said, you know, we're not coming out of this cabin until we come up with a strategy to evolve this business, right? And really solve fundamental problems. And mobile payments was a fundamental problem. But the challenge that we saw was that the credit card wasn't broken. 
right? Consumers pull the credit card out of their wallet and they swipe and they still do it today. If you look at the penetration of mobile payments, it's still incredibly low um, because the card is just easy, right? So, And familiar, for sure. And familiar, right? And so you really have to come up with something that's better, dramatically better, right? I mean, Apple came out with an Apple card, right? They have a physical card, yet they're pushing Apple Pay. Um, the two are interlinked, of course, but they came to that same realization, right? That the card still works. So we, you know, literally locked ourselves up. We brainstormed many different types of businesses, all with the common core of fintech, right? Because that's the type of team we were. We had great developers. We had great industry knowledge of financial services. And we knew we had to stick to that. We weren't going to go launch a social gaming platform or a social network. It just would People wouldn't back us, right? Because we had no experience in that space. Um, so, you know, we kind of laid all our key assets out, you know, on whiteboards all across the room and, and basically looked for new opportunities. And we ended up launching a concept called Lemon Wallet about six weeks after that offsite um, that, that struck a chord with consumers where we literally enabled them to use their phone and take a picture of a receipt to track purely spending behaviors. Mint.com existed at this point in time, and it was it had a, a great desktop interface, but really a, a poor mobile interface. So we were kind of the mobile Mint.com, where we used OCR and Mechanical Turk and some machine learning to basically digest that picture, right? And, and give you back product by product spending data categorically aligned, which turned into a budget right, for consumers. And we're like, this doesn't sound too complex, but we had like a million users join the platform very quickly. And we didn't even spend that much money to get there. So we started listening to our customers. Uh, we raised more money, we raised another, I think eight or $9 million uh, from some great investors. And they told us, they said, hey, we have more things in our wallet. We want them on our mobile wallet. So we started scanning like healthcare cards, credit cards, gift cards, even digital currencies back in this time, right? This was 2011, where Bitcoin was like 37 bucks a coin. Um, <laughs> today, it's like- today. Exactly. So, and it peaked at what, like 19,000 a few years back. So um, we started just literally backing up all these forms where they could just have access to it. Then we enabled them to actually use it. Uh, we then launched a lost wallet concierge product, which- at the point in time, I felt like it was snake oil because I'm like, what are we really building here? But honestly, people were paying us like anywhere from like $4.99 a month to $9.99 a month, literally to just get on the phone with them and guide them through the process with their credit cards when they lost a card, right? And we would just ring them in, call the credit card company and say, you know, so-and-so lost their card. Can you please cancel it? They would say, is so-and-so on the line? The person would say, yes. And they would pay us money for this because it just made sense, right? So there was strong, absolutely trust. It made trust. sense, it was yeah. good value, wasn't that expensive. We saw such strong demand, we got to profitability in less than 12 months. Uh, and then got offers to sell the business, which we ended up doing. We sold it to LifeLock um, literally within 12 months of our pivot which was like an amazing success story. And so um, if we were afraid to pivot, we probably would have spent another 12 months doing the Bling Nation song and dance and you know wouldn't have succeeded, right? But our, our founders at that point in time weren't afraid, right? They, they realized we had more to lose if we kept doing what we were doing than trying something new. What was, was, do you know what it was? I mean, that's so hard to do, right? You think about it, they, yeah. they, you raised 30, they raised $30 million yeah. And, and, and essentially threw it all away to pivot into this new space. 
Like that takes a, a tremendous amount of gumption. Like, what do you think it was specifically that said this, we have to make this move? Yeah, it's it's a hard question. And when I was at RenRen, we used to hold a CEO summit every year. And mm -hmm. one of the talks that our, our chairman, Joe Chen, gave was the art of the pivot. And there, there's some data, right, that can tell you something's not working out. And if you've tried enough options, right, whether it's, you know, cutting your team back or hiring new people or scaling up marketing, scaling down marketing, trying new product launches, not trying, you know what I mean? If you've tried enough things and something still isn't working, you have a couple options, right? You shut the business down uh, or you try to pivot. You know, and and I think Slack is probably the most successful pivot ever, right? Yeah. I mean, they, they didn't start the, the business away from games, huh? <laughs> That's right. You know, they didn't start the business to do that, but it came down to instincts, right, at the core of it, because the data is not going to tell you when to pivot or how to pivot or what to pivot to, but instincts and gut reaction and past experiences, you know, founders have to trust their their instincts right? The board can't tell you what to do. The team can't tell you what to do. Most people are too conservative, right? But great founders rely on their instincts to know which way to move and which way is north. I'm curious to hear like that moment for you and your management team at that point. So you're, you're in Tahoe. I'm sure, you know, lots of things happen in Tahoe that you don't want to talk about on this podcast, but because <laughs> I love a good Tahoe trip, but in, in all seriousness, so here you are, you're walled up, you're clearly putting everything on the whiteboards and, and sort of saying, we're not leaving this cabin until you figure it out. What do those instincts feel like for you? You know, cause it really what I'm hearing and feeling is the evolution of that business to London Wall really happened with that management team, with that team in that weekend, essentially those five days, if I'm sort of hearing. Yeah. And, and we, we kind of broke down into, into three separate groups when we were there. And so each group came up with their own idea. And so we had three different business ideas coming out of that trip. Um, we put a little Facebook dollars behind them and literally saw which, which people clicked on the ads and more importantly, which ones gave us email addresses. And in some tests, we even asked for credit cards. Mm. If someone gives you a credit card, that's commitment, right? And so we didn't know the right answer coming out of that, but we knew the pathway and the, the, the things that we had to do to get to the right answer. Um, and we also didn't have the name Lemon Wallet when we came out of that trip, right? But what was funny is Mickey Malka, who runs Rubik Capital now, he's like, I have this domain, uh, lemon.com. You know, because he he ran a bank called Lemon Bank down in Brazil, uh, which sold and and he kept the domain. And we kind of looked at each other and we're like, lemons are typically bad things, right? When you think about a car, a lemon thing, thing. I was like, wait a minute. It's usually not a good, you know, it's it's bitter, it doesn't work, you know, it's usually not a good annotation here, but it was a great domain and, you know, it's really hard to find a good domain. And it's funny, like, um, you know, my partner Todd Kimmel at Montage, people ask him, how'd you name Montage? Well, he got married at the Montage Hotel with his wife. So that was first, but it was a domain that he could actually find, right? Which was more important. Um, and so domains typically lead to names. Um, but, you know, I'd say, I'd say our, our founders, you know, had, had built companies before and, knew what it was like to fail, knew what it was like to succeed, had been in those those trying moments. And so, you know, we we followed them as as a management team of Bling Nation and as a founding team of Lemon Wallet and really trusted 
their instincts and their experiences. And from that, you know, we learned our own, you know, pathways, you know, to, to look for when, you know, my founders, you know, at Montage are going through these hard times, right? What does a pivot look like? Uh, when should you pivot? When shouldn't you? What should you leverage, right, in that pivot? And what should you, what should you dust and leave behind? Um, it's a lot of it's gut and instincts. Mm -hmm. So, so it's funny that you talked about the receipt, by the way, when we worked with, we worked with a startup years ago, had to be 2006. Yeah. About that. Yeah. Early. 2006. Yeah. And we wanted to prove that people would send us their purchases and that they would, the first test was, would, would someone mail their receipt to us physically mail their receipt? And we were buying them at like 50 cents a receipt, right? Some, or, some yeah, I forget what the performance was, but it was it was wow. it was something similar where we were trying to digest the information, but people were less likely to open up their bank accounts to us at the time. So we were just like, mail us your receipts so we can want to see what you're purchasing so we can help you in some capacity. I forget what the language was, but yeah, it worked. But that company ultimately pivoted multiple times, looked like it was going towards success and then failed. Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk about failure. Um, and you can choose career, investment, or company. Yeah, I'd say pick, career. Pick, pick your poison. What's what are career some of the companies that you've seen? Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes you see great founder, great great market, right? And still, uh, oh. you know, tons of growth. Everything, all the all the macro trends are, are leading you towards this is definitely a winner. But something happens. Yeah. Uh, can you talk, maybe talk us through some of that? Definitely. So I was, um, I was 26 years old. I was living in New York City. I was running advertising at E-Trade. Things were going great, having a great time, big budget, you know, getting wined and dined uh, in New York City, probably best place to be at that point in my life. But I got a phone call and it was from the old CEO and chairman of E-Trade, Christos Katsakis. He was living down in South Florida and he said, I have an idea. I want to build kind of a next generation. I want to build a social network, right? This was in 2006. Facebook was still on college campuses. YouTube didn't even exist at this point in time, right? And he wanted to build a network for all the different sides of someone's life, right? You have a social side with your friends. You have a family side. You have a business side. Yet on Facebook, it's one side to everyone, right? Back, back in the day. Now you can create different groups and circles. Uh, but it was a really compelling, interesting idea and he said, I want to make you the VP of marketing, right? The head of marketing, you know, you're going to join the team super early, come down to South Florida and check it out. I came down, he had a great team surrounding him. It was like the opportunity of a lifetime for me because I could step up in my career in a major way, skip quite a few roles and really be a part of something in the early days, right? At E-Trade was thousands of people in the company. And so... I, I followed I followed the leader, right? I mean, Christos had had did you know incredibly well for me before at E-Trade. Um, and so I trusted him to you know continue that and moved down to Florida with my wife and um, you know literally started on this on this journey, um, which was an amazing experience. Uh, and you know, we we didn't quite know fully what we were building because, excuse me, because social networks at that point in time, we're very nascent and early, right? And so we constantly were iterating and trying new things and we were putting money behind it. I mean, we had raised $77 million, which was a lot of money back in 2006, a lot of money. Uh, you know, equate that to a few hundred million dollars today, right? By standard. Yeah. Um, and so I think the biggest learning, and the company didn't work. 
we ended up selling it for its assets three years later. The biggest learning there was the problem wasn't deep enough for any of us. And I'd say the vision was strong, but the problem wasn't deep. Meaning, you know, we, we had an idea of what we wanted to build, but no one truly deeply understood kind of the customer set and, and what they were going after, right? It was still very much a vitamin and not a painkiller, right? We weren't solving a problem that was deep enough for consumers that they'd be willing to pay for. We were kind of providing them a great experience. It was beautiful. It had great content. There were good relationships that were forming on the platform, but it was a nice to have. It wasn't a necessity. And so, you know, I look back on that experience and there was a lot of lessons that came out, you know, vitamin versus uh, painkiller was a big one. Um, but then really a deep rooted passion against, you know, a fundamental problem is critical to really determine. Right. And I don't think we ever unlock that. And the last thing I really learned was timing was everything. Um, there really haven't been many new successful social networks created since Facebook. I mean, Instagram, of course, Snapchat, of course. Uh, but MySpace kind of fizzled out, right, when it got bought by Fox and News Corp. LinkedIn. Um, what's that? LinkedIn. You know, you could call it a social network, but it was focused, right? It was focused it on the professional. <laughs> <laughs> True. But there's been far more failures than there have been successes, right, in that yeah. space. And so I do think timing matters. I do think focus matters. I do think you, keep, you can't be everything to everyone, right, which was another lesson that we learned from that experience. And I think focus was really key. I mean, we, we had a social platform. We were producing content. We were producing video and serving our advertisers. And it all made sense while we were doing it. But something obviously didn't right? Yeah. And we had all the money in the world to make it work. Um, but, you know, I think it was tough, right? I mean, we had our own dedicated data centers back in the day. Uh, now we have AWS, right? Where it's like, you don't need to waste money on data centers. Um, it's almost crazy when I hear about a startup, you know, investing into data centers. Um, so the world's changed a lot too, right? In the last, you know, call it 14 years since we started that business, uh, it's a lot easier to start a company now, right? Yeah. I mean, you can start a company up with less than a million bucks and, and literally get a website up and running, get payment processing set up sure. uh, and literally be off to the races, even spending money on advertising, right? Because Facebook's ad platform is there and it's incredibly powerful. So timing, timing is critical. I'm wondering, Matt, one thing you said that, that I want to sort of poke into there with that pitfall is Clearly that when that chairman called you and said, I've got an idea, it feels almost if I'm sort of hearing it again, I wasn't part of the story, but just outside or in, it sounds like you were chasing ideas and not insights versus with Lemon Wallet, you really, really cracked that insight. So I'd love to sort of just from your vantage point, was it the, was it the insight that lacked there? Was it, you know, you said the problem wasn't deep enough, you know, in some cases. Yeah. Trying to understand or... Potentially, was it that you were too well-funded and you had every resource? I, you know, one thing that showed up for me totally. in that sort of imagining you and your management team in Tahoe is it sounds like, yeah, you had some capital raised, but you had a lot of infrastructure you had to build there. And really, it was the scrappiness at Lemon Wallet that that sounds like it made the big difference for that pivot. But I, I'd love to, I don't want to make my own determination. Tell me from your opinion, were you chasing ideas instead of insights? And is that the thing? Or Yeah. 
So I'd say there's two interesting learnings, and I, I apply these to my my day to day at Montage. Is if a company is overfunded in the early days, they're they're not going to make the hard decisions that are needed right every step of the way because they have a lot of cash, and cash becomes a drug. Right, you get high off that drug. But money, more problems, like Biggie said. Right, I was thinking about <laughs> Jordan Belfort. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. I mean, you spend money on things that probably shouldn't have been spent money on, right? You 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 don't you don't you take big chances because you have cash, but you don't really make the hard fundamental decisions because you don't have to, right? You you can live another day if you have money in your bank account. If you don't have money in your bank account, you make the hard decisions, right? To yeah. to fight to live another day. So I'd say that that's one thing, right? Is that, you know, if I see a company that has and I'm a seed stage investor, right? So I come in in the early days. If this company wants to raise 20 million bucks at the seed stage, yet the problem doesn't quite need 20 million bucks, then you know they're going to get drunk on capital, and and they're probably not going to succeed. Um, I mean, look at the uh, the video startup with Meg Whitman, right? I mean, they raised a ton of cash, mm. and it did not succeed, um, probably because you know the problem wasn't deep enough. You, you got on the content was beautiful, but why uh that and they had too much money and so they didn't they didn't they didn't need to succeed right and then the other the other thing is when you have really successful founders that have had a big exit right out of the gate they're usually not successful on their next company right as you kind of go is which is which which is such an interesting insight there because Every the uh, in the venture community, and we know ninety percent of the venture community is full of shit. They're followers, but they're looking for what's your pedigree, what school did you go to, and have you had a successful exit? But meanwhile, that what you just said is that after the first exit, the second one is usually hard. So why is that? Do you believe it's because the hunger is not there, the drive is not there, right? You are comfortable. Right. It's it's like, why why deal with the hardships of entrepreneurship if you just made 50 million bucks? Right. You should be off traveling, enjoying life. There, there are people who have been successful. Right. Like Max Levchin with a firm after PayPal or Elon Musk. Right. After PayPal with Tesla. Um, and so there, there is a rare breed of entrepreneur that no matter what they want to win, no matter how much money they have, they'll invest it all back into the company. Um, and that's another learning too, because, you know, as a venture investor, if the founder's putting a lot of money in that shows conviction, but it's all about percent of worth, right? If they're putting 5% of the net worth in, and it's like 5 million bucks, it's not enough. If they're putting 50 to 75% of the net worth in, then yes, they truly believe because they're they're in pain so bad they want this to work. And so drive is really critical here. Yeah, yeah. I love that. And the thing I'm curious about when you talk about the, the problem not being deep enough, the question I would ask you, so a lot of the work that, that I do with my team is sort of trying to poke them to develop creative strategies and insights that really matter, right? So my question for you is, do you believe with some of those ventures that didn't go so well that the problem wasn't deep enough or that your understanding of the problem space wasn't deep enough? It's a good question. Um, I would say it's probably both. Okay. Um, because, you know, smart entrepreneurs can create new markets and create opportunities and creating a new market like Chegg, for example. I mean, textbooks were there. Right, students were getting textbooks. They were studying. That hap that's been happening for a long, long time. The problem was was 
big, right? In the sense that, you know, the starving student mentality. Um, but but why did Shag succeed, right? Because the problem's always been there. Um, there there have been textbook rental solutions that came before Shag, right, on a localized level, but they never quite took over the bookstore or fully challenged the ecosystem like Chegg did, right? So I would say Chegg was better at fundraising, um, meaning the management team. And we were, we were better at, at just creating delightful experiences for our customers. So I'd say the insights were far stronger than anyone else had. Awesome. And so it's kind of a combination of, of all the above, right? Um, to really, really, truly drive success like that. I love that. And, and Matt, you, you're probably getting you know dozens, if not hundreds of pitches a month where people are trying to get you to introduce them to someone to raise funding or for you to be the, the, the sort of fundraiser there behind it. I want to sort of kind of dig back to that 21-year-old self and maybe sort of give him or her some, some advice back in the day. You know, first question I want to ask is, how do you know when you're talking to a founder and you ask them a question and you know the problem's not deep enough or you know as an investor that problem is deep enough? So what would you tell your 21-year-old self um, back then as to like how to know when you know? Yeah. I mean, I'd say I had no clue what I was doing back then. Right. You know, as a 21 year old, even like a 25 year old, I had no clue what I was doing. I now still as a 40, doing so. Yeah. Now as a 40 year old, I'm like, okay, you know, I probably should have done these things differently. Um, but as a 40 year old, I'm still, you know, an imposter living in my body, still learning every day. Right. So I'd say, you know, the, the one thing constantly push yourself, constantly make yourself feel uncomfortable, but, but never stop learning. Right. Never stop asking questions, right? Once you think you know everything or once you stop engaging and in, in just having the curiosity to learn something new, you really, I mean, you're kind of failing at that point, right? In life. And so, you know, I'd say as a young 20 something, I was learning every moment of the day, right? And I had a passion to learn from the people around me because everyone was smarter than me. Everyone knew more than I did. And so I was always asking just the obvious questions, right? Because I didn't know. And I wasn't afraid to learn or ask those questions, right? Whereas you get older in life and you get afraid to ask the basic questions, right? Because people expect you should know those, especially if you've been successful in your career. But having the confidence to ask the basic questions and not feel insecure doing it is, is really hard, right? For a lot of people. Like the rhino mentality that you always talk about, Dave. Yeah, indeed. Having thick skin and a hard head to break through problems. So I'm curious, It, you know, well, growing up, I, I had a, a mentor that told me 20s are for learning, 30s are for earning, but he never finished what the 40s and 50s were all about. I'm, I'm 40 years old now, and I think 40s are for, for growing, right? Wow. So, so, so we talk about, we talked about pivots, we talked about successes, we talked about uh, failures. I'd love to talk about progress. What does progress mean to you right now? In your 40s, how are you growing? What's inspiring you? Uh, and, and what are you focused on in this part of your journey? Yeah, that's, that's a big question. Um, I would say one thing that I, I try to do, and I don't always do well at it, um, but I'm aware, is to always be present in that moment, right? Mm -hmm. So relationships really matter. I'd say relationships have been fundamental to my career. Mm -hmm. Every opportunity that I've gotten has been through someone I built a relationship with. 
I've never gone out and got a job through, you know, headhunting, right? It's all, it's all been my network, my relationships. And so, you know, being present with people, investing in people, forming deep relationships with people really matters, right? It just matters to happiness in life, in family, uh, you know, it's, it's a different type of wealth, right? And so I'd say the 40s are all about really being present and being self-aware, right? Of how your actions and behaviors truly impact others. And, and how, can, how can you help kind of that next generation, mm-hmm. right, succeed and, 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 and push themselves, right, to, to, to break through and do amazing things? Uh, and then enjoy yourself too, right? I mean, the 40s, I'd say, are probably the best years. Um, I think we're both, you know, in the early part of our 40s, but, you know. I'm right at that mark, 40. I'm going to hold yeah. on to that until January. <laughs> I'm going to hold on until until April. <laughs> so. uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, you know, to throw my hat in the ring, you know, for me, it's been vulnerability. Yeah. You know, I, I'm really just learning how to be vulnerable at this, at this uh, juncture of my life. And uh, it's crazy to think that so much has happened. And yet I still think now, finally, I, I always thought I was going to uh, die young. Now I'm like, man, I haven't even hit the halfway mark. I'm going to make it a long time. So now it's sort of like learning, earning, growing. What's next? I'm really excited for it. But vulnerability has been big for me. Yeah, no, it's that's key. I agree. And then just being healthy. Right. Yeah. So making the hard decisions, waking up early. You know, one thing I did a few years back is, you know, I, the snooze button is the biggest enemy, right? Because the more you snooze, the tire, more tired you get, the lazier you get. And so um, just waking up at 5 or 5.30 a.m. and just mm-hmm. getting time to yourself, right? To just focus, think, work on the things that need to be worked on. And then, and then exercise, right? Exercise yeah. before everyone else in the household gets up because that's the only time you have to yeah. make it happen, but, but make a commitment to it. Because, um, you know, the healthier you are, the better you eat, you know, the, the, the better you are from a thinking perspective as well, right? And we really need to be like, you know, pounding on all cylinders at this point in our lives. And so we need to be, you know, as, as clear, level-headed, as smart as we can. So mm-hmm. I, I'd say we've killed enough brain cells over the last, you know, 40 years. Yeah, I love that. I actually haven't used an alarm in, in years. I, I've been alarm-free for a year. I, I, once I got rid of the snooze button, my brain automatically would wake me up. And now, I mean, I, if I, if I, I should say this, I probably use an alarm maybe now because of COVID never, but pre-COVID yeah. only when I had a, a red eye flight. Like if you've oh. got, a, a th- when you got to get up at 3 a.m. and catch a car service to get to the airport, then you need an alarm. But other than that, uh, just a regular cadence of the traditional week, uh, I haven't even needed an alarm. So I, I have a, a little bit of a, a, a weird question. You can talk about aha moments as if they were your own, or you can talk about ones that you witnessed, because sometimes we witness just incredibleness, right? And, and it teaches us valuable lessons. Have you come across any sort of like smack yourself in the forehead? Holy shit, this was staring me in the face, or I can't believe I didn't see that. What was, your, what was your wheels on the suitcase moment? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you guys have heard a company called Robinhood. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, we've heard of them. Robinhood's very successful, right? It's kind of the next generation E-Trade. Yeah. So I, I saw Robinhood at the seed round and the Series A round 
when I was uh, at Renren. And at Renren, I was I had kind of a dual role. The I was hired to, you know, really help globalize the business and and launch new products. And the chairman gave me, you know, as as much as I needed. Right. We had hundreds of developers. We had plenty of cash. And we were just building new products. But as we were building new products and networking within the ecosystem, we were meeting a lot of smart entrepreneurs. And so we invested, started investing in companies. And, and our, our first investment we ever did was probably the most successful. It was a small company at that point called SoFi, uh, Social Finance, which revolutionized student loans. And, and Joe Chen uh, saw it, you know, because Renren was a, a college, a social network for college students, right? So we saw the mix of social and finance together. Um, and, and we invested $250 million into that company and, and did very well. But we started seeing other early stage companies. And one of those that we saw was Robinhood. I was enamored by the founders, super impressed. They were just dynamic, amazing, got it, building a better experience, mobile first, created a huge wait list, virality amongst this target audience that everyone was trying to get, get access to. And you know, running advertising E-Trade, I knew how hard it was right, to build uh, an online discount brokerage and acquire customers uh, that would stick with you and actually help make you money. Robinhood was free at that point in time, but they were making money on, on float and on, on the back end. Um, but we evaluated the deal twice and passed both times because it was a very expensive deal. The valuation was very high. I want to say, you know, in the early days, it was like a 70 million, you know, uh, cap. And then it was in the hundreds after that. Um, and, you know, at Renren, we were, we were frugal, even though we had a lot of resources and the frugalness is really what helped drive success in that business. But don't be frugal when it comes to investing in companies that are disrupting massive, massive spaces, right? And so that was a big aha moment because I don't even know what Robinhood's valued at now. $8 billion, $12 billion, something massive. I don't want to know at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Probably don't want to know, but it's funny. I, I do joke with uh, Joe and James from Renren, like, guys... <laughs> We had this one on our table. Um, so, you know, as, as I look at opportunities now, you know, with great founders, great founders can raise money, right? And great founders can raise money at any price point because they're, they're magnetic, right? And they, they command the room and they have a vision that they inspire people to believe in, right? And so, you know, as I, as I look at great founders coming across my desk today and, you know, I'd love to invest in a startup, a seed stage startup at like a five or six cap, right? Very early where I write a check and I can own 10% of the company, but great founders want 20 million, 30 million on a cap basis, right? On a, on a post money valuation. Uh, and so my ownership level is a lot less, but you know, you're, you're investing in something that's going to be massive, right? So if you own 3% of it versus 10%, but that 3% is worth, you know, 100 million, whereas if you back something else that was a smaller market, not as great of a team, you owned a lot of it, who cares? You owned a lot of nothing, right? So, you know, don't, don't let kind of silly things like valuation stand in your way from partnering up with amazing teams taking on massive spaces. That, that was a big aha moment that I will hopefully not make that mistake again. No, I love that. Matt, you mentioned one thing earlier. You talked a lot about investments. You talked a lot about investing yourself, you know, self-awareness, invest, investing in relationship, power relationship and, and networks. You know, this is a question I want to ask you sort of selfishly for my 21-year-old self, which I'm certainly not that anymore if you can't see all these gray hairs here, um, which is a lot of folks that are listening to this now in the future are introverted. 
You know, I myself was, you know, much more comfortable behind a screen, not on a video call like we're having right now. For those that are really committed, driven, um, but not understanding how to break into that importance of relationship and network, you know, it's like a foreign language for some folks. What would you say and is a good place to start? Because a lot of a lot of people ask me that question, ask David that question. You know, David famously says your network is your net worth. He's always saying that to folks and people like to write it down and quote him for it. And, and certainly you didn't invent it, but it's you coined it. But how do you do that when when so many of the, the really brilliant technical co-founders that are building these things that you've invested in or, or have benefited from don't have that relationship or self-awareness? Where would you say what's the advice for that 21 year old so that they can build that earlier and not have to wait till they're 40 to have that sort of hindsight, as they say? Yeah. I mean, I, I'd say, you know, every, every person that you interact with, right. You should just not be a dick. Right. And just (laughs) don't be a dick claw. Yeah, that's great. Just literally be nice. Right. And, and invest in people. And so if you are a 21 year old and you're like, how do I go get the attention of that super successful 30 year old or 40 year old people like to, they like to talk, they like to share, they like to educate. Right. And so if you're coming in and you want to learn from this person, you're asking them questions people feel good, right? When they're giving back to other folks. And so if you're coming at it with a positive mentality and attitude and a, and a willingness to learn, right? And, and, and try to contribute something to that person as well, right? You know, I get a lot of 20 somethings, you know, sending me LinkedIn notes and um, we, we get hundreds of LinkedIn messages a day and founders that want to pitch us. And, you know, how, how do you break through? being creative, right? Being unique, being scrappy, being different. Don't just send me a LinkedIn note, like break through, right? Do something, something that's going to stand out, right? That shows me how interested you are in, in having a conversation, right? What's a good breakthrough example that you've experienced either directly or indirectly recently? You don't have to get too, too detailed if you don't want to, but just curious to hear like, what does breakthrough feel like to someone as, as busy and successful as Matt? Yeah, so um, you guys remember the company Zenefits? Of course, we use them. <laughs> right. So Zenefits, you know, had, had a rocky road. I thought it was the stairwell. <laughs> it went well, right? Um, they, they had a really awesome sales tactic in the early days. And so um, the, the CEO was kind of well-known, um, you know, repeat founder. And they literally, the, each salesperson could send an email from that CEO's inbox out to a prospect. And it was, it was the most brilliant sales hack I've ever seen because it felt like I was getting an email directly from Parker, from the CEO, who I'd met before. And I'm like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll take a look at your thing. And he's like, great, let me line you up with John, right, or Billy. Um, and it was literally Billy doing it the whole time. But it was, it was a great way to break in and just hack sales, which I I love a good sales hack, right? Because, you know, if you're doing inside sales and you're just trying to get someone's attention, that's a tough job, but if you can outsmart the system, right. And break through in some way, it just takes a little creativity. Um, my, my next door neighbor told me this great story. He, um, right now he, he runs sales at, at Palo Alto Networks, which is a very big, successful public company, but he wasn't a sales guy early on. He was actually a pilot. 
um, and was flying puddle jumper planes. And literally, you know, he, he, uh, his best friend was getting married and he was giving a speech, right? This, the best man's speech. And I guess he delivered probably the best speech that this uh, CEO of a company had ever heard. The CEO literally approached him after the speech and said, hey, I know you're a pilot, but man, you're great on the phone or great in person, right? Kind of, you know, just getting a crowd going and breaking through. He's like, have you ever thought about being a salesperson, right? Like doing inside sales. And my neighbor, Rick was like, no, I haven't, but sounds interesting. And, you know, he was kind of getting tired of just the rat race of being a pilot and kind of rising through the ranks or, or seeing a ceiling at that point in time. And he was like, I'll try it. So he literally jumped in as like a BDR, a business development representative, and just started smiling and dialing. And now he's like, you know, the president of America's of sales at like Palo Alto Networks. I mean, talk about like the CEO saw a raw talent, literally approached this guy, changed his whole trajectory on life. Um, it was an amazing sales hack, right? Because he never would have went into sales. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think it's like, and he wasn't afraid, right? He was just himself. And he was just delivering a best man speech that went down in history, right? So, but he Literally. created a relationship with that CEO, you know, in a way that if he was trying to get a job from that CEO, probably never would have happened. So, yeah, I think, it, I, I think if I could pull out some of the things that you said today is be memorable, right? I think I, I, I always tell people, be memorable, do what you, you know, say what you mean and mean what you say. And, and I also say, don't be a dick, which I think I'm just, we should just turn that into an acronym, you know, D bad, don't be a dick. It's like yeah. a clause in a contract. It's, it's like uh, people put all these different clauses in employment contracts or partnership contracts, and it should just be like the DBAD clause, <laughs> you know, just don't be a dick. Totally. No, I love uh, that. Um, I know we're coming out of time, Matt, and I'm sure you've got back-to-back. -back. I hear calendars blinking back and forth. Um, where's a good place for the audience to sort of stay in touch and kind of follow the work that you're doing? I mean, clearly, you know, you've got your hands in a, in a lot of really incredible things now and certainly will in the future. So how do we yeah. stay in, in touch with Matt? Definitely. So on Twitter, you can hit me up at MJM Report. Um, Unwritten Wines, join our mailing list. You know, if you like fine wines from Napa, beautiful Cabernets. Um, my, my team also gave me a special discount. If anyone uses the code podcast, they get 15% off, which we never give discounts. Love that. Um, Put that in the show notes for sure. Yeah. Go to unwrittenwines.com if you love just high-end Napa cabs. Awesome. Oh, yeah. That's great. Well, Matt, thank you so much for, for being on this episode of Ford Obsessed. I, I can't wait to share this with the audience. Um, I know that they're going to really appreciate it. And hopefully this helps a few folks. Uh, get to their their 40s level knowledge, uh, hopefully in their early 20s, unlike some of us. So. And seed stage ventures that are looking to introduce themselves to you, Montage Ventures, FinTech, uh, Consumer Health, right? Yeah, so we, we love seed stage. So kind of first institutional check coming in. Uh, FinTech is an area I focus on, which includes, you know, if you're shaking up um, banking, lending, investing, insurance, real estate, asset management, any areas along those lines, um, that's about 50% of what we invest in. And then the remaining 50 is kind of new care models for healthcare, right? So think like concierge care or new ways of delivering, you know, uh, telemedicine for various different concepts, right, or, or clauses. Um, and then the last area is just kind of daily use consumer products. 
So we've invested in CBD with feels. We've invested in Live Tinted and Crown Affair on the beauty front. Um, so we love kind of daily use products uh, in the consumer side. But yeah, my email is just mmurphy at montageventures.com. Awesome. Well, everybody, thanks for tuning into Ford Obsessed, and we will talk to you all soon. Matt, thanks so much, man. That was awesome. Good job. Thank you, guys. Yeah.